love thy neighborhood. Okay. Oh, cool. Oh, definitely. <laughs> awesome. Discipleship and missions. Mission. For, For modern, modern times. So I'm sitting in this chair and I remember this joke. And I start kind of laughing under my breath. And uh, the next thing I know, I'm sobbing in the middle of this barbershop, like just uncontrollably, you know, weeping. This is a show about self-discovery. About understanding ourselves. About looking into the mirror to see the good, the bad, and the unknown of who we are. This is about how we relate to God. And everyone else. From Love That Neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome. 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 To the Cast. Hey, welcome to the Enneacast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Lindsay Lewis. Every episode, we walk you through the Enneagram and help you build better relationships. And today, we are continuing our series on how our personality impacts our relationship with God and our approach to faith. Yes, we've been talking about Richard Rohr's quote that says, how we relate to God always reveals how we will relate to people. And how we relate to people is an almost infallible indicator of how we relate to God and let God relate to us. In other words, how we relate is how we relate. Yep. You have one relational style and you love it and you love to apply it to all aspects of your life. So the way you relate to your family and your friends is going to be a very similar way that you relate to God. So today we're going to explore how that shows up for Type 5, The Investigator. So today's content is building on our 101 content from season one of the show. So make sure that you have a basic understanding of the Enneagram before diving in further, or you might feel a little lost. So, Lindsay Lewis, what are we going to look at today? Okay, today we're going to look at three things. First, how their personality influences their relationship with God. Second, how their lens influences their view of God. And third, how God heals people with this Enneagram type. Okay, so first, let's explore how their personality influences their relationship with God. So give me an idea of what this looks like when it's healthy. Well, I think of fives, we always joke about that they have their mind palace, Mm -hmm. you know, where they like to go Mm -hmm. and live in the dark recesses of the library in their mind. But for fives, I think that that makes them um, even better suited for contemplative practices than the rest of us. So they're able to be still and listen for the voice of God. They're not as rushed or like thinking of other people or what other people think of them or where they should be going to be with other people. They're happy to be still and listen for that voice of God. And they're also very curious. And Mm -hmm. so they love knowledge. They love to go deep into things. So I just think that a healthy five when they're in a relationship with God, they want to, they really want to know God. They want to know those deep truths. They want to sit within the mystery of who God is and kind of worship in that deep space. 
Yeah, I do. When I think of a healthy five and their relationship with God, I definitely think of somebody who is in pursuit of sort of a robust theology, Mm -hmm. you know, like the Mm -hmm. knowledge of God and study of God, but they don't mistake correct theology for actually experiencing God. Like a healthy five really wants the experience of God as well. Like Mm -hmm. I don't just want to know facts and figures and Bible verses about him. I want him. The other thing, too, that I appreciate as well in their approach to God is the capacity to be silent and still when they're in a healthy place. Mm-hmm. The ability to be still and to gather mm-hmm. and to gather facts and, you know, awareness and a knowledge of who he is. Yeah. Okay, so that's the good news. Uh, we also need to look at the ways that their personality negatively influences their faith. Yep. Lisa Vischer told us that psychology informs theology. In other words, our personality leads us to create particular theological emphases, which result in a slanted rule of life. So we really love one approach and we want to take that approach all the time. And Mm -hmm. so we mistake something that's good and we make it ultimate at the expense of all the other things. Yeah. And for the five, they do have a tendency to relate to God primarily through knowledge. Right. So what does this overemphasis on knowledge look like? They can come to a place where they think that they just, they know all that there is. Yeah. I have gathered all the facts. I see it all correctly. Mm-hmm. Um And this can drive them either to complacency right. because they're like, why do I need to strive any further? I've gathered everything. I already mm-hmm. know everything. Or a sense of pride, a sense that all these other people don't see God correctly, but I always see the Lord correctly. There can be a tendency as well for fives to neglect what's going on with themselves emotionally Mm -hmm. and the calling to do, to go out with their bodies and to engage the world. And so they can have this diminished experience of God as a result. If you take this train all the way to the end, Mm -hmm. what does the unhealthy five in the relationship with God look like? It looks like the pastor who comes into the church building and goes into their office and reads Mm -hmm. books and writes his sermon and works on all his stuff, gets up and teaches, Mm -hmm. but never engages with anybody in between. Yeah. So it's an oscillating between study and sort of teaching or like a dispensing of the knowledge Mm -hmm. with no relational work in between, which is a shame because— Life is all about relationships. Right. Yeah, you can see how that, um, you mentioned the complacency and the pride and how both of those lead you away from doing that deep inner work. Because one says, I've already done it. I already know it all. It doesn't matter. And the other one's like, eh, it's like not worth the time. Right. And that's the sweet spot for the fives is using all that knowledge, that depth to do the inner work that is then going to flow through their emotions and through that right action that you spoke of. Yeah. A couple of things that's worth paying attention to for our fives, you know, when you approach your relationship with God, are there issues of you overthinking things? Mm -hmm. You get lost in the weeds where you begin to fixate on particularities at the expense of the the main obvious big picture. Yeah. A fear of connection, you know, leading to loneliness. Do you find yourself withdrawing? Because here's the thing. A lot of fives are like, I can go be a monk. That would work for me. Mm -hmm. But without the relational connection to other people— you can't experience the same relational vibrancy with God. Mm-hmm. We need both things. And the tendency to, to at times, be excessively controlling mm-hmm. and even be self-controlling. Like, don't feel it, 
Don't yeah. long for it. Don't want it. And so a diminishment of your own desires, mm-hmm. a diminishment of bringing your own wants and needs, a diminishment of recognizing what God is stirring inside of you. So yeah, when the false self of the five shows up, it's going to impact your relationship with God. Right. Okay. So that's how this type tends to relate to God. But one of the main reasons we relate to God incorrectly is because we see him incorrectly. So How does the lens of this personality type distort the way they see God? Yeah, they see God often as distant and Mm -hmm. uninvolved. Mm -hmm. They see God as somebody who's not going to respond to their needs. Mm -hmm. So God can become a series of precepts and a series of ideas. He's a worldview instead of an actual Mm -hmm. living person who desires to have intimacy and relationship with them. And so God becomes distant, removed, stingy, Mm -hmm. uninvolved, and that he will not care for their needs. Right. But really, God is engaged. He is ever-present. And he is always with his people in all of the mundane and human aspects of your life. So in your physical body, in your emotions, you know, not just in your head knowledge, and that God is the all-knowing one. So that's that high side of five, that we see the perfect ability of God to know all things because he created them all. And that he loves that fives have that sense of wonder and that capacity to look at the deep things, to want to look into the mystery and appreciate that side of God. He created all of that. Like Mm -hmm. he, he declares all of that good and that he desires to meet the needs of the five because In all of our 101 stuff we talk about, that's that wound the fives have is that, you know, no one's going to meet their needs. They have this sense of emptiness. It's like, I have to do it all from this place of emptiness. And God says, no, no, that's a false reality. Like, I will always meet your needs. He's the God of abundance. And he's placed you in a world that has enough. There's no scarcity. Yeah. Yeah. So for type fives, we have looked at how personality influences their relationship with God and how their lens influences their view of God. So we're now left with the question of how God heals people with this Enneagram type. Right. So we always talk about he doesn't heal us with good advice, with cliche, you know, bumper bumper stickers, Yes, half Bible verses. But he heals us with his good news. So we don't follow good advice, but we surrender to his good news. So what is the good news for type five? Yeah, he heals your fear with his presence. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think about um, the the five is often crippled with an anxiety and a fear. Mm -hmm. I haven't I don't know enough. I'm not equipped enough. Mm -hmm. I haven't researched enough. And so there's this desire. I need more resources. And the good news for the five is. You have the resource, Mm -hmm. and the resource is present with you. He's present with you right now in this moment Mm -hmm. and will always be present. And God's presence heals that fear. But in addition, like, he also heals your shame with his delight, and he heals your guilt with his forgiveness. Right. So he gives fives the good news. Your needs are not a problem. So whatever it is you feel like you are lacking, that's not a problem. You know, God created you just as you are, he knows that you are nothing but dust. And he is totally prepared for that reality. And he knows exactly your limits. And he's okay. He's not scared of your limits. He loves you 
just as you are, and he will provide the abundance. Yeah, having needs is not a flaw. Yeah. You're supposed to have needs Mm -hmm. because he's a good father that wants to give to you. So good news, you know, it leads to transformation. So after receiving this good news, you are invited to respond. So as a disciple, move from greed, sort of a relational stinginess, move from that posture to a place of generosity. Give yourself relationally to others through concrete acts of giving more than required. The five is invited instead of going, well, I got to withdraw to take care of myself, instead to move towards the community, towards Mm -hmm. other people, towards God, and to not count every cent, you know, and every minute of the day and to go exactly how am I allocating? Be generous. Yeah. Give it away because there's more than enough. God is going to take care of you. Final couple of tips for investing in your relationship with God. We enjoyed the book, The Enneagram for Spiritual Formation from A.J. Sherrill, and he recommends upstream and downstream disciplines for each type. So for the five, the downstream or the kind of easier discipline to flow with is inductive Bible study and rest. I would also add that contemplative practices can be also in the downstream Yeah. once they get in the flow, if you Right, will. right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, and then the upstream discipline is going to be acts of service mm-hmm. and sharing with others. And specifically, that can look like signing up for routine volunteering, you know, routine places mm-hmm. where you're going to go and you know to anticipate every Tuesday, mm-hmm. I go to this homeless shelter and I help serve, yeah. or uh, I go volunteer at my kid's school, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But Acts of service, getting out there outside of yourself. So that is the upstream discipline. Okay, Lindsay and I are not type fives. We are not qualified to speak on behalf of all type fives. We have a friend here who can tell us a little more about being a type five. So our guest today is Mike Cosper. Mike's a longtime friend and Louisville, Kentucky-based writer and podcaster, primarily focused on exploring issues of worship, culture, and spiritual formation. Many of our listeners probably know him from his recent podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. He serves as the Senior Director of Podcasts at Christianity Today, and Mike is a five on the Enneagram. Hey, man. Welcome to the show. Couldn't couldn't find my mute button. Hey, happy to be on the show. (laughs) Good to be with you guys. Okay, Mike, can you tell us what from our teaching time today stuck out with you? Did anything resonate or would you tweak anything? No, I, I, quite a bit. I mean, it's interesting. I love the metaphor of the mind palace. I actually became familiar recently with this. I don't experience this personally, but there's this phenomenon called elaborated daydreaming. Mm. I've been fascinated with it ever since I heard about it. But this is basically this interesting thing where people have their brains wired a little different and they can daydream in like VR where it's lifelike, but it's not a hallucination. It's just very intense. And there are people like Steven Spielberg, filmmaker David Lynch, Stephen King. They all report this kind of ability. And it's very, again, it's very, very unique. But it made me think about that as you were talking about the five and that similar kind of ability to get lost. I mean, one of my challenges in my work, whether it's in the podcasting side or in the writing side, is I'll I'll be working on something and, you know, some point of reference will come up and um, I'll say, oh, I want to go check that. I wonder if there's an interesting quote on that, you know. And the next thing I know, I've spent 90 minutes down a rabbit hole reading Mm -hmm. a dozen articles on something where I'm going to come back with a two-sentence quote for whatever it is that I'm working on. Right, There's just something deeply, deeply satisfying about it. The other thing I thought of that was interesting as you talked, I, I think, Jesse, you made the comment that the five feels like, oh, I could go be a monk. You know, it's interesting. I've spent a lot of time 
reading about monasticism and just very interested in the life of Thomas Merton in particular. But one of the things that's actually interesting about monasticism is it emerged because, you know, the founder was, you know, St. Benedict. St. Benedict founded the monastery because you had all this phenomenon of desert hermits and people who felt mm. called to this sort of life apart where they could grow, pursue intimacy with God and this very ascetic way of life. Well, Benedict was one of these guys, and he was like, man, it just seems like these guys go out to the desert, and they never talk to anybody again, and they get really weird. Right. And they, they start doing strange things. Right. So the, the whole foundation of the monastery was actually about community. Merton was very interested in that kind of hermit life, and for much of the time he was at the Abbey of Gethsemane, he was lobbying to be allowed to go live in a hermitage kind of away from the other monks. And for most of his time there, the abbot wouldn't grant it to him because the abbot was like, no, you need the iron sharpening iron of being in a community. You have to bump up against other people a lot more than than you think you do. Mm. So yeah, those those two things definitely stuck out to me. And then the, the third one I, that I was thinking of before you mentioned it, Lindsay, was the disconnect between the five and their body. Mm. For me as a person who tends to be pretty driven, I make this mistake regularly where in my drive, in my ambition or whatever, I have no problem with a 14, 16 hour workday. It's just how I'm wired. I can just go, go, mm -hmm. go, go, go. But what I often do when I get into that kind of a mode or a, a rhythm or whatever is I don't do anything to care for my body. I eat badly. I sleep badly. I don't exercise. Then like I'm burned out and three, four weeks or whatever. And I'm like, why do I feel miserable? Right. You know, And it's because I'm just so disconnected from those kinds of things. Yeah, that's good. Mm. All right. Well, stay with us because when we come back, we will be continuing our conversation with Mike Cosper. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Kirsten, the recruitment assistant at Love Thy Neighborhood. We recently talked with the parents of some of our alumni to ask them how serving with us has impacted the life of their child. Hi, this is Steve Lindsay from Leola, Pennsylvania, and my son Taylor served with Love Thy Neighborhood in 2018. That was a year that was life-changing, and one in which we saw him grow in his faith, his self-awareness, his leadership skills, and in his passion for those in the margins of society. We honestly believe that that year invested will have not only wide-ranging, but eternal impact. If you want a hands-on experience of missions in our modern times, Come serve with Love Thy Neighborhood. We offer internships for young adults ages 18 to 30 through the areas of service, community, and discipleship. You'll grow in your faith and life skills. Learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org. Hey, welcome back to the Uniacast, Jesse Eubanks. Lindsay Lewis. And we are continuing our conversation with Mike Cosper. Mike, what do you find to be the most difficult as you think about your relationship to God, about how you relate to God, and what comes easily in terms of how you relate mm. to God? You know, it, it's funny because listening to you all talk about stillness in particular was interesting to me. I feel incredibly drawn to that. I can look at the most life-giving experiences of my life or the most sort of fulfilling seasons of my life where I felt like my prayer life was rich, my sense of intimacy with God was rich. And that was a huge part of it, maybe a central part of it. 
What I find though is that's also that can also be really, really especially difficult because my mind wants to go down all these other trails. You know, it's mm. Henri Nouwen refers to it as the monkey mind, you know, which mm-hmm. which I think is a pretty common phrase in meditation literature. Yeah. So I, I found that interesting. I mean, it, it makes sense to me as a if the idea is like this is nourishing or this is a very life-giving thing for the five, I totally identify with it. I don't necessarily identify with it in the sense that it feels easy to me because um, mm-hmm. particularly in places of exhaustion or overextension, what I find is that like the mind doesn't want to quiet down. Like it wants to keep going. Like the, the frantic mind just won't stop. Yeah. Yeah. It needs something to chew on, right? Like it's, it is a consumer and it needs something to be consuming where prayer and scripture and stillness and these, these sorts of things are somewhat antithetical to that kind of consumption. It's, it's about presence. And for whatever reason, that can be extremely difficult for me. Yeah. Has there ever been a moment where you started to think that your personality was influencing your relationship with God or your theology? For sure, theology. And I would say, yeah, in terms of relationship too, like because the five wants to disappear in their mind, I think it's very easy for a five to sort of lose lose sight of the orthopraxy of faith, like the life of faith, the need for relationships, all that sort of ex- taking what you hear from the scriptures, taking what you hear from what you read, what you learn, translating that into ordinary everyday life can be really difficult. And the nature of the soul is always prideful, right? Like, so our type becomes the enemy in the sense that it becomes the source of our pride. And so the fact that we have answers, the fact that we can devour ideas and devour content becomes the way that we define righteousness at times. And that's a dangerous thing too. I I would say the the most humbling part of my journey over the last five, seven years, which has been a very, very humbling season in many ways, the most humbling part of that journey has been experiencing a little bit of the breakdown of some of the more rigid that I felt really competent about. I think in ministry, one of the things you experience is people look up to you and as a result, they come to you with all kinds of different problems. And, uh, you start to internalize the idea that you're supposed to have answers for everything they come to you with. Mm. And for the five, that feels great. And then you look back and you go, oh man, what am I doing giving out marriage advice or parenting advice or any of the rest of it? Like, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing, you know? And life has to kind of beat you up around those edges, I think. So here's, here's something interesting, Mike. I don't know if I've ever told you this story and this is kind of, this is sort of doubly interesting. So number one, I heard Tim Keller speak on his book tour and it was in Louisville and it was actually in the church where your church Mm -hmm. is now. And so in the course of that evening, he, you know, Keller's known for doing Q&A at the end. And someone said, a lot of what you're talking about tonight are idols. What's yours? And he said, I always need the next book. Mm. And somebody said, and why is that? And he said, because of right now because I'm scared you will ask me a question Mm. that I will not have an answer Mm. for. Mm. And I think like he's tapping into, in that response, he's tapping into the exact stuff that you're Mm -hmm. talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I remember hearing Dallas Willard say something similar. He said the uh, most common lie that the pastors and college professors tell is, oh yeah, I've read that book. (laughs) (laughs) Uh 
and yeah, you you feel this need to have an incredible amount of competency. And I think, you know, the two things that the five has to learn, and I'm still struggling with both of these. Number one is to say no. Fives are ambitious in a way that's different from the three, but still an ambition of their own. They, at least in my experience personally and, and what I've seen in others, is there's again that that impulse to kind of take things in can also be an impulse to take things on. Like I have the competency, so I'm going to say yes to everything, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's kind of like just because you feel competent to do something doesn't mean that you should say yes to it. And mm-hmm. so saying no and saying I don't know is the other one. Yeah. So one of the things that fives can struggle with at times is a like a relational stinginess because of energy, because I what if I get asked for things and I don't feel competent, you know? And then, Mike, I think about the last couple of years of your life, you know, you spent over a year working on the rise and fall of Mars Hill, in which so much of that was calling you to hold other people's deep emotional wounds, their stories. How did that influence your faith, your approach mm-hmm. to God? Yeah. Um, so the, the rise and fall of Mars Hill premiered in June of 2021. I'd started working on it about a year before that. But in February of 2021, my father got sick. We didn't know what was going on. And within three weeks, he had passed away. Uh, We found out that he'd had pancreatic cancer and that it was so Mm -hmm. far along that, you know, there was just nothing to do. We got the diagnosis on February 28th and he was, he passed away a week later. Mm. So anyway, the experience of grief that I had with losing my dad defined my own experiences of grief or like redefined my own experiences of grief significantly. I would sit with therapists for years and they would say, you need to learn to grieve. And I would always just say, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. What does that mean? Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And when I lost my dad, there's this, there's this funny moment. So like a month and a half after he, he passed away, I was getting a haircut and there was this, uh, on the jar of the barber's bench or whatever, there's this jar of barbicide, which is this like blue liquid that they suspend, you know, they put scissors and combs and stuff like that to kill bacteria or whatever. There's this moment in Curb Your Enthusiasm where Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David are talking. They're talking about somebody who had been chewing on a pen and how disgusting it was. Uh-huh. And Larry's like, yeah, I like to keep uh-huh. all my pens in Barbicide, you know, because of because you just never know where they've been. <laughs> and, and Jerry's like, what is Barbicide anyway? Is that the thing? Bar- bar- do barbers drink Barbicide when they want to die? And he's like, yeah, that's what they do. They drink it. They commit Barbicide. <laughs> and so, so I see this thing on the counter and I remember that joke and I thought about like, that was the kind of thing I would have texted my dad about afterwards. And, uh, so dad had passed away. I hadn't, I hadn't cried. I hadn't had any real emotional response. It had been like, it had been very, it had been very five, right. It had been very disconnected from it and looking at it analytically. So I'm sitting in this chair and I remember this joke and I start kind of laughing under my breath. And, uh, the next thing I know I'm sobbing in the middle of this barbershop, Mm -hmm. like just uncontrollably, you know, weeping. And I, you know, I, I start to kind of gather myself a little bit. And my poor barber, she was standing there, you know, just literally the clippers are going and she's holding them in the air with her eyes wide open going, what the heck is going on with this guy? And all I could kind of get out was like, I just lost my dad. And you just saw the recognition in her face. And she said, yeah, me too. It was about a year ago. 
And that moment of like, literally nothing else was said about it. I caught my breath. She kept cutting my hair. And it was that kind of thing where you just felt like, oh, I felt seen. I felt heard. I felt understood, Mm -hmm. you know, and I didn't need a whole lot to feel that way. It did two things for me. One was I left there with this real sense of finality about losing dad. You know, I have 100% like I've got hope in the resurrection and, you know, believe that I'll see him again and all of that. But being able to kind of embrace the difficulty of he is gone was the thing that that defined grief for me for the first time. I was like, oh, that's grief. This acceptance of that world is gone. Something new is here. And so that reshaped a lot of my memories. It reshaped a lot of those experiences, all the stuff that people have been telling me, like, you need to grieve. And it was very healing and liberating for me. And then the other thing I think it did was as things ramped up into the Mars Hill series, you know, some of the most difficult conversations I had with people uh, in terms of what they shared happened while we were making the series as people came forward to talk to me. And um, I think there was just enough from that encounter with my own grief that I knew better than to do anything than to just listen and to ask questions and to say, I'm sorry, you know, Mm -hmm. that was enough. And that's a long answer to your question. But for me, that was the challenge. And the good thing about being a five was I didn't go into that feeling like I had to have answers for anybody. I could just sit with them. And it was powerful stuff. I mean, I think about some of these moments they're on the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast. So, like, we're talking at 1, 2 in the morning sometimes because we're talking after work. And it just felt like you were on holy ground with somebody who was sharing sharing these horrible experiences that they had. And I think it was healing for a lot of them as well, just to be heard. Yeah. Your own profound loss that in some ways, like, you'll limp the rest of your life, mm-hmm. you know, with, with your dad being gone. If you had made the mistake that is so tempting, which is I've got a degree in grief therapy mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, I've read some books about grief, that's not at all the same as the true knowledge that comes having walked through the fire mm-hmm. yourself. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's right. I think that's what what reckoning with suffering really does. Like when you really sort of open your eyes to whatever the rubble happens to be that you're standing in, whether it's physical or emotional or relational, when you really open your eyes to it and kind of accept it for what it is, you, you know, you don't look at your neighbor and whatever they're suffering and start telling them, well, here's what you need to do to put the foundation back together. You're able to just kind of look over and go, man, like that tornado hit both of us. Like, gosh, that sucks. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. And, because you're, you're humbled to the place where you just know better than to think you've got anything more than that to offer. And there's a reality, too. Like, people don't need more than that. They need solidarity. They mm-hmm. need presence. But I, I do wonder yeah. if that's something that, like, there's no other way to learn those lessons than to walk through that kind of darkness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, man. Thanks for letting us in on that. And when we come back, we'll continue our time with Mike Cosper. Stay with us. Here at LTN, we believe that in order to be loved, you must be known. And part of being known means understanding who you are, which is why we created Mapping Your Enneagram Story. Mapping Your Enneagram Story is a workbook to help you map your life story and understand who you are. 
Using the lens of the Enneagram, you'll explore how the story you've lived has made you into who you are and why Jesus is the key to living a better story. To get your own copy of Mapping Your Enneagram Story, just go to lovethatneighborhood.org and click the store link at the top of the menu. There you'll find Mapping Your Enneagram Story plus all our other Enneagram content. And all proceeds go directly to support Love Thy Neighborhood. So go to lovethatneighborhood.org and click store. Mapping Your Enneagram Story. Find the clarity you need to have meaningful, long-lasting relationships. Hey, welcome back to the Enneacast. Jesse Eubanks. Lindsay Lewis. And it's time for Super Fight. All right, our game today is called Super Fight. So, Mike, here's how it works. For each round, Lindsay and I will each be given a random Enneagram type, and that type will be our fighter. <laughs> we will then also be given one random attribute for our fighter. So, for example, we might get a type one who has X-ray vision. Once we have our fighters, Lindsay and I will each get a turn to convince you why we think our fighter would win in a real fight. But then it is up to you to declare who the winner is. Whoever wins the round gets a point. We play three rounds. Are you both ready to play? I'm in. Let's do it. All right. Round one. Lindsay, go first. Okay. So I have a type four who has the lasso of truth. Like Wonder Woman's lasso of truth? Yes. Okay. So I have a type seven who can turn invisible while singing show tunes. Lindsay wins. <laughs> Next. Yes. Next. Round two. That, here's the thing. Normally I'd be like, no, I want a chance to argue. But even I read it and went, no, nah, this is, this is, that's, a, that's done. All right. Well, one point to Lindsay. That was, that was a bloodbath. And don't you know type fours would just love to have the last Yeah. Of yeah. Oh, my gosh. Death to my jazz hands, apparently. Okay. <laughs> one would have lassoed the other one and said, do you hate the show tunes as much as I do? And they would have said yes and just immediately vanished, you know, in a cloud of contradiction. So. <laughs> All right, here we go. This one is going to have some energy, I think. All right, round two. I have a type eight, and they can turn into any type of vehicle. Anything. Any type of vehicle. Any. Yes. And I have a counterphobic six who can take the form of anything they touch. The form of anything they touch. All right. Yeah, I'm going to destroy you. I mean, come on. A type eight... First off, just a type eight alone would probably yep. would probably end the thing anyway. No. Can turn into any vehicle. I mean, you could start small. You could go car. You could go mm -hmm. semi truck. Mm -hmm. oh, you could go. You could go tank aircraft carrier. Yeah, like yeah, Millennium Falcon. So the Millennium Falcon. Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. all the things. Mm -hmm. The Death Star. Yep. Okay, go. But all I have to do is touch <laughs> you, and I would be the exact same thing. Or I could become. A anti-aircraft missile, or I could become anything to avoid whatever you become, or I could just become you. So say we become the same mm -hmm. thing, mm -hmm. an eight that is a tank and a counterphobic six that is a tank. Who will win that fight? It would be a counterphobic six because they are motivated by fear and not arrogance. And so they are out for blood. 
Yeah, I'd probably just kill you before you could touch me, but you, your argument was fine, I guess, besides that. <laughs> Lindsay wins. Yes! Oh my gosh. Yes! <laughs> no, I, I buy the fear motivation thing. I just think uh, put people in a corner and they're just going to they're gonna fight dirty. It's just going to get evil. It's going to get yep. dark. So, you know. Yep. yep. Almost all of the evil people in history that people are like, oh, they were type eight. If you actually listen to Enneagram people, they're like, oh, no, those people were counterphobic sixes. This game's dumb. All right, round you three. This uh, one's my favorite one. Okay, Lindsay, Lindsay go. Lindsay, go. Okay, I'm a type five, but there are three of me. There are three, three of you? Okay. There's three of me. Okay, I'm a type nine, <laughs> and there are 10 of me. Yeah. There are 10 of me. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I'm a type five. And Mike is type five. <laughs> that, that's, that's that's my the argument. argument. Oh my gosh! The end. Okay. Yeah. Well, let me tell you this. At least my nines will probably work together as a team. They and will talk all with be each other. sleeping together no. in a giant nap. <laughs> Big old no, puppy pile. Come on. Yeah. Oh my gosh. No. Come on. These okay. are these are healthy nines. These are nines are getting things done and they're working as a team. But they're mediating. And then I just kill them while they're mediating. Oh, my gosh. Because okay. I'm a five and I'm like Benedict Cumberpatch. Mike. So, I, yeah, I think the nines are going to be all like equally. They're going to say, look, I'll just absorb the conflict and actually just absorb the projectiles that the fives, <laughs> you know, throw at them. So Lindsay wins. Yes! That is a, that. what do you call that? So we're getting Where the I, theme like, to this game. Lindsay wins. Should we just call the game Lindsay yes. wins? Lindsay oh, my <laughs> gosh. that idea. Jesse, this is your dream come true, a game called Lindsay Wins. Uh, Mike, I am so glad this could be your final <laughs> your final appearance on our show. <laughs> no, I think we should have Mike more often. Oh, my gosh. All right. Congratulations, Lindsay. Thank you. And now it's time for 11 quick questions. All right, so Mike, we're going to ask you 11 questions. You can answer with one word, one phrase, or one sentence. Number one, what is a word that you use too much? Hmm. I like the word incandescent. I use it as, that's incandescently stupid. That's the phrase I use all the time. So, <laughs> But I like the word, I use it too much. Uh, uh, Elizabeth uh, Bennett, that's who says it in Pride mm, and Prejudice. Mm. She says incandescently happy. Something like that. As opposed to incandescently <laughs> stupid. Yeah. I got it from Jordan Goldberg, to be fair. But yeah, I use it all the time. <laughs> Question number two, what is a word that you wish you never had to say again? <laughs> Mark Driscoll. <laughs> uh, I love it. Oh my gosh. That's good. All right, number three, what makes you feel alive? Hmm. Being at the beach. Mm. What repels you? Oh gosh. <laughs> I never want to be stuck in a room watching a performance where I feel embarrassed for the person performing. Oh, yeah. That's the worst experience. Like, that's the worst feeling in the world. When you see somebody just bombing, oof, I've, gosh, I, this happened to me recently. I won't give the details. <laughs> I wanted to die inside. It was painful. All right, number five. What is your favorite emotion? Oh, um, I mean, happy. Why, who would say anything but happy? Nobody has said happy. Really? Mm -hmm. Nope. I mean, I just want to be happy. That's where <laughs> I'm at in life. 
Yeah. What is your least favorite emotion? Um, embarrassment, like shame, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. especially when you're feeling like you've let someone down, you know, yeah. that's huge for me. Mm-hmm. What is the sound or a noise that you love? Uh, good music. What's a sound or a noise that you hate? Bad music. <laughs> <laughs> if you could switch Enneagram types for a day, which one would you try? Um, I would like to be a three for a day so that I could catch up on my emails. <laughs> <laughs> if you could tell your teenage self one sentence, what would it be? Oh, that's a great question. Um, here's my answer to that question. I don't know, and I don't love indulging those ideas. Hmm. That's another, that's a longer conversation. But I like. I feel like a lot of times those kinds of questions For me anyway, maybe this is the doom of the five. This is not a short answer. Maybe it's the doom of the five is like when I think about those questions, I'm thinking about, okay, what what were the worst things that happened to me and how do I guard myself from those ever happening? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm I'm not compelled these days to think that that's a helpful frame. So So he said it was a good question and then he totally like. Yeah, I caught that too. Decimated it. Yeah. I thought he was just going to say, hey, man, don't get that haircut. (laughs) 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 okay what would you like to say to god what's the first thing you want to say to him when you meet him face to face (laughs) this is supposed to be light what is this 11 (laughs) quick questions you know why does god allow suffering (laughs) um oh jeez honestly uh i think i would just want to say thank you Mm. yeah Well, Mike, thanks, man. Thank you so much for joining us today and for, you know, letting us into your world. You know, a lot of folks obviously have heard you talk a lot lately and have heard a lot of uh, your thoughts on things and the things you've wrestled with. But, uh, you know, I'm grateful that you have let our listeners kind of get into a different part of who you are. And uh, I know it's going to be a gift to a lot of folks. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to connect with both of you. And I look forward to my next appearance when I can choose Lindsay as the winner and whatever that game is too. (laughs) If you benefited at all from this podcast, please help us out by leaving a review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Your review will help other people discover our show. Special thanks to our guest today, Mike Cosper. You can check out his podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, by going to any podcast app on planet Earth. And also head over to Amazon. Mike's got a ton of different books. Make sure to go buy some of those as well. Also, special thanks to Crosspoint Ministry, who helped train us in the Enneagram. You can check them out at crosspointministry.com. This show is brought to you by Love Thy Neighborhood. We provide internships focused on service, community, and discipleship for young adults ages 18 to 30. Serve for a summer or a year and grow in your faith and life skills. Learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org. This episode was written by Lindsay Lewis and myself. Anna Tran is our media director and producer. Music for today's episode comes from Lee Rosevere and Murphy DX. I'm Lindsay Lewis. And I'm Jesse Eubanks. Remember, the eye can see everything but itself. Find people to journey with you because you were created for community. 